0: Hi, I'm Saul Griffith. I'm the author of The Big Switch and the founder of Rewiring Australia. I grew up in Sydney. My first job was in the steel mill in Newcastle and my second was in an aluminium smelter in Western Sydney. I moved to the US in 1998 and I've recently returned. While I was there, I enjoyed success as an inventor and entrepreneur in Silicon Valley starting technology companies. I've worked extensively with the US government including modeling electrification of the US and global economy as the solution to the majority of our emissions. I wrote the big switch to tell the story of what Australia has to win in rapidly and aggressively tackling climate change. We've been politically lost in a culture war about what we have to lose. And we've forgotten to think about the upside for us. We are still the lucky country and we can use that luck to lead on climate action. We have the best renewables in the world. We had good governance. We can lead the world in getting emissions to zero. We can lead the world in saving money in our suburbs and towns. We can lead the world in creating jobs and export industries in our regions. We can show by example how to make a better world for our children. Black Inc., the publisher of this book, kindly gave us the rights to read audio versions of the book ourselves. So we've partnered with a number of legendary Australians, all of them exceptional in their fields, mostly sporting fields, to bring these ideas to a bigger audience. These are people who are no strangers to winning, and for our country and for our children, want us to win on climate as well. I thank them for reading this book with me, for you, for our country, and for our world.
1: Hi, my name is Fiona Whitelaw and I live in Maria, which is on the far south coast of New South Wales. I'm going to be reading chapter 12 of The Big Switch, An Abundant Australia. This revolution isn't just for city folk. Everyday Australians are already winning and we could help them to win more. My mate Fiona, who lives in New South Wales, reminds me that the switch to widespread electrification is happening already. Filtering into our everyday lives, making them better, more resilient. She lives humbly on the south coast where I think she spends most of her time either advocating for positive change or sharpening her wit. Always good for a yarn she tells the story of jacko not his real name her neighbor in maria who is emblematic of why life might just be about to get better for all of us on the last day of 2019 the black summer bushfires that had been burning for over a month reached the sea near bateman's bay the power was out for days and in some areas for weeks jacko is 74 he likes fishing, and, after years of working as a dairy farmer and a chicken sexer, among other things, he sold up and moved to the coast. Jacko likes to issue weather reports in his standard unit of measurement, the number of dogs blown off a chain. Jacko is both types of gold, B&H unfiltered and Nescafe. During the fires, Jacko rigged up an elaborate watering system that sprayed a fine mist over his house. The problem was everyone else had the same idea and the water pressure dropped precipitously. Jacko had a tank and a pump, but not enough petrol to run the generator for 12 hours until the immediate risk had passed. The petrol station in town had closed because the pumps ran on mains power. Jacko can live without power for a few days, no worries, but his freezers can't. Every few months, Jacko goes up to his brother's farm near Albury and shoots feral goats and sometimes deer. He has three chest freezers stuffed full of the silliest ungulates in the riverina. During the hot nights that followed the fires, the freezers began to burp. Jacko discovered that there are only so many times in a man's life that he can deal with a chest freezer belching a dead roo. He cracked the shits and called his mate from the bowls club, who had a new off-grid system. Two weeks later, Jacko bought a Tesla Powerwall and installed a rooftop solar system. He's not interested in the bells and whistles of the app on his phone, but he can see that the roof of his three-bedroom double-brick home produces more power than he uses. Importantly, it means that his grandson can come over and use his nebulizer whenever the mains power goes out. He's changed a few things over, including adding an induction stove top, which, aside from being easy to clean, means he's less likely to set the house on fire if he leaves the rhubarb on. Ray, from Bowles, has a Tesla car that he plugs into his system and uses as a battery. Jacko is hanging onto his diesel ute for another couple of years until someone makes an electric one because he's not having Blue, his enormous cattle dog, in the car with him. But he did buy an old electric golf cart so he can pop down to the wharf when his knee is playing up. Growing up on a farm in Albury... In the 1950s, Jacko's family was pretty self-sufficient, but it wasn't an easy life, living with an ammonia fridge and hand-pumping water for the house, garden, and the odd bath. Now he's got a veggie garden, water tanks, and a rooftop solar system that produces so much juice he can have a spa bath on the deck at night. He's not worried about power bills. He doesn't think twice about leaving the water pumps on for the veggie garden or running the small air-con unit in the front room on the 40-degree days when his grandkids come over to play Uno. His home is not just his castle, it's his kingdom. Australia needs a good dose of hopium. Every mainstream party has driven a negative debate around climate change. Under duress, they will eventually admit that this negative approach is a problem. It's then framed as both a negative thing and a pesky cost that some dreary whining greenie who doesn't even know how to start a tractor is forcing them to pay. But there is plenty of hope to go around – Australia is an abundant land. We just need to allow ourselves to tell and hear the stories about how doing things slightly differently, and not shockingly differently, can make it all turn out okay, such that we can focus our attention back on the cricket or footy or surf or horses or fishing or bowls or whatever is your Saturday arvo thing. For whatever strange reason, my father had Jaguars when I was growing up. They smelled like walnut, leather, pipe smoke, and burnt engine oil. If you could design an aftershave for me, that's the smell I'd like to suggest. I was no strangers to cars, boats, trucks, and odd vehicles. One of my fondest memories is of driving with my parents to a movie with them in the last of Dad's Jags. It was raining, and wipers squeaked over the front window. And from the back seat, I saw the silhouette of my dad, one arm on the wheel, and the other around my mother's shoulder. She'd sidled over to him on the bench seat, and her silver hair sparkled and caught the reflections of raindrops and oncoming headlights. I know that cars aren't great for the planet, so somehow I struggle forward as a climate hypocrite, trying to resolve my love for the machines and the moments. My wife and I are onto our third leased electric vehicle, having owned a Fiat 500E, a Chevy Bolt and a weird Nissan electric van based on the Leaf. That last one was perhaps the most practical vehicle I've ever owned. A bucket for dogs, sand and children that practically runs for free. I don't go much for new cars, so this year I electrified my 1957 Fiat Multipla and started in on my 1961 Lincoln Continental. The Fiat makes a V-dub Beetle look big, but nevertheless seats six and was the dominant taxi cab in Italy in the 1960s. It's hard to tell the front from the back. I'm retrofitting it with six oversized electric skateboard motors and a bunch of hobbyist parts and it will easily get me around my neighbourhood and the kids to school. The Lincoln is a stunning car. It was released in 1961 as a rejection of the finned looks of the 50s Detroit. Streamlined and space-aged, perfect to become the presidential limousine of the first space-age president, John F. Kennedy. Ford has electrified the Mustang and is famously electrifying the F-150, the most produced ute in history. Because of this, there are now aftermarket parts for retrofitting the classics. I was one of the first lucky people to get my hands on the Illuminator, Ford's 280 horsepower electric crate engine. It replaces not only the engine, but the transmission and the differential. That's one of the great things about electric cars. Fewer parts, less failure, less oil, less grease. For far less than the cost of a new electric car, my Lincoln Continental will be fully electrified by the time this book comes out. It will mostly sit in the garage, I suspect, where it will be the backup battery for the house. That's how I sold the project to my wife. My vintage car isn't a toy anymore. It's a critical piece of household resiliency and part of the national infrastructure. My father borrows my electric Nissan van whenever he can. It's the only way he can use all the solar being produced on his roof. He bores his golf mates with reports of how many dollars he generates or saves each day. Like Jacko, he often uses his electric golf cart to run an errand or save his knees. At 83, he is resisting getting an electric car for himself, but is enjoying being part of the transition. My sister lives on the northern beaches, and this year installed her second solar system and a house battery, and bought herself a Hyundai Kona Electric. Her stovetop is now induction, and the gas water heater has been replaced with a heat pump. She's a single mum and has found that all these decisions make economic sense when she plans her life and the independence she wants. She works in sustainability and teaches the next generation of kids about how to think bigger and more entrepreneurially about climate solutions. She's walking the walk. I have an old mate. Colin, I met him when I was a grad student at the University of Sydney and I was helping teach a class he was taking in engineering. He lives in the Southern Tablelands now and is building his own electric aircraft designs which will soon be available as kits. The carbon fiber two-seater can easily fly a few hundred kilometers and should be safer and far more reliable than similar planes that run on petrol. It won't be long before our fly-in, fly-out workers are flying in and out to lithium mining and smelting operations and electric aircraft built by people like Colin. My cousin Harley runs a very normal Australian business. He installs HVAC systems, specialising in refrigerators for small businesses. He drives the truck and does the installation work while his wife, Tiff, does the books. They service the south coast from Narooma to the western suburbs of Sydney. Like many tradies, he will benefit hugely from the electrification of our homes and businesses and from this great energy transition. His next work truck will be electric. He's got solar on his new house, providing clean energy to his two young kids. His children will never have to experience the respiratory challenges of growing up in a house heated with natural gas because he's already gone electric. The future is already happening in Australia. We're three to five years ahead of the US on this journey of electrification, except for our abysmal record on electric vehicles. We are ahead of Europe. We are the logical country to lead the world and show everyone that the future will be awesome, electrified and abundant. To achieve this, we can't afford to let up the pressure on our politicians and the sooty hands of big business. They need to hear the good news stories and imagine what success looks like. Everyone does. Everyone wants to be on the winning team. We may seem like the climate underdog, given the last 20 years of crappy Australian federal government climate policy, but the underdog here can come good and bring it home with a strong finish this decade, winning the climate future we all want for Jacko and for Greta, and for ourselves and for our children. Rewire Australia. Electrify everything.